Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Real Me In, colon, a movie podcast. This is your latest installment of For Your Isolation. Uh, this is our little series devoted to people, uh, or not devoted to, uh, aimed at people who are in self-imposed isolation, general quarantine, lockdown, what have you. During these strange and difficult times, um, it's a scary world out there, folks, but hopefully we can give you a little distraction, in, in both in terms of something to listen to, and also maybe give you some uh, viewing options um, while you are, you know, in your house a lot. Uh, I'm Joel Copling, one of co-ho- the co-hosts. Chase is not with me. Uh, of course, he is offering his own content in the form of a ton of reviews. I think it's been one a day for the, like, the last two weeks or something. So you have a lot of reviews to watch over there on his channel on YouTube and elsewhere. Um, meanwhile, I'm doing this, I'm revisiting movies and giving you top tens of the first decade of the century, the two thousands, the aughts, uh, I think they're called. Um, and I am not alone this week though. I am joined by our friend, Mark Dusick. He's back. Uh, he is, you know, he's joined us on top tens of the past few years And he's back. We're going to be talking about the best films of 2007, uh, which is a really good year for movies. And um, Mark, uh, first of all, how are you doing with all of this right now? And also, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I am. uh, I'm doing I'm doing relatively fine. Okay, (laughs) relatively (laughs) Um, you know, there's still movies coming out. They're not going to theaters, but they're, you know, being released on digital and on demand. So it's, you know, I'm keeping up with that stuff. Um, you know, they still deserve an audience and they still deserve some coverage. So I'm, I'm giving it to them because they would have been in theaters anyway, and I would have been covering them. So I'm just going to keep it up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Otherwise I'm just, you know, trying to keep up with the viewing and the writing and, trying to not think about everything going on in the world as much as I can, even though it's difficult and also going out for a lot of walks with my wife, which is nice. (laughs) Right. I've been doing, I've been doing a lot of walks myself. Uh, We've had some crummy weather the past couple of days, so I haven't been able to Um, just like, it's so weird. Texas is strange guys. It's it's the state of like a thousand seasons. It's insane. Uh, Because just a couple of days ago, we were like 80 degrees or, or whatever. The high, the high was 80 degrees. So, of course, at the point that I went on the walk, it was around five or six, you know, once the heat had kind of died off just a little bit, that it was comfortable for me to go walk. Uh, and today it's like in the 40s, oh, randomly. Uh, I went out to, to bring in some groceries a couple hours ago f- uh, from um, a trip my mom made, and it's like freezing cold. And, I, and just the other day, I was able to go on a walk in perfectly like 73 degree weather. It's, it's just insane. Texas is weird that way. And uh, so I haven't been able to, but... You know, for me, it's like I'm an introvert by nature. So I know that there are a lot of people who are having difficulty adjusting to sudden, like, you know, yeah. stay in your home. Uh, for me, I mean, it, there's going to be a limit to it. I think that everybody has that where you're just like, OK, I, I want to just go outside. And for me, the thing that I do when I feel that is I go out for an hour and walk and I feel like, you know, being stuck inside gives you kind of almost um uh, sudden onset of like claustrophobia eventually. 
and yeah. it's just like every, every you know all the walls are closing in so yeah i think the walk is incredibly therapeutic to kind of you know i'm nobody's out right now uh so it's not like i i mean i am social distancing when it's you know necessary yeah. but it's not like it's super necessary because yeah nobody's it's, nobody's going outside <laughs> it's gonna yeah it's gonna rain here in chicago tomorrow probably so there were a few more people out but you know we just crossed the street whenever we saw somebody like you know approaching from the other way yeah so, you know it's just, just common courtesy in this yeah situation looks 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 slightly insane from afar i'm sure from from the other person if it were happening not under these circumstances it would look weird you'd be like what are those people doing what are they doing yeah but we all from here do all yeah we do all have kind of an understanding with each other at this point i am just Um, wondering my big my big wonder right now is at what point is it possible to watch the shining without it being too real that oh, that's i think that's gonna be the cutoff you can as do it you start watching the shining and you're like nope nope can't do it <laughs> just uh do it in the dead of winter uh, mm-hmm. there we go there we go that's that's the best that's the best time um no but uh <laughs> and start writing a book in the dead of winter yeah. then it'll be uh then it'll be nice a nice watch no um but yeah it's it's just it's kind of crazy you know we're um uh, te- uh, the Texas government system has been really odd about this whole thing because a lot of places are. Yeah. I mean, nobody knew what Collin County, my County was saying when they said, you know, everybody stay inside, but also essential services can stay open. And also every single business is an essential service. And that just basically means everybody's going to leave their house. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That doesn't make any about? sense. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we were pretty good whatever. here in Illinois. They, they, the governor, Pritzker. Yeah. He's I, really been good about making yeah. sure everybody's staying in and giving yeah. us a, enough heads up. Like we had a we had a few days um before like the weekend hit to tell us that, you know, they were extending our stay uh, shelter in place. So it's been good. Mm-hmm. Give us time yeah. to get out to the store before everybody started panic buying again. So it was good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very yeah. happy to be here right now with under the circumstances at least. So yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, well, let's get into this. So 2007 for the Academy was the year of No Country for Old Men, the Coen Brothers crime thriller um, adaptation of the Cormac McCarthy novel. We'll see if it, we'll see if it makes our list. It's uh, a I know possibility. That, I know, yeah, it's a possibility. It's a possibility. We were both pretty lukewarm on it, but it's a possibility. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, that's a slight spoiler, I guess. But no, uh yeah, it's it's this is such a rich year, and I gotta say, like you know, making the list now is brutal because, of course, what I wanted to do is I wanted to do my due diligence. I wanted to, you know, there had been a few movies on uh, on Mark's list that I had not seen. Couple movies right outside the list that I was like, okay, well, I want to see these again. So, yeah, it's it was it was like really hard to to make any sort of list right now um it was a much easier back when i had seen fewer of the of the really heavy hitters <laughs> but uh but mark how did you how did you want to tell people how you approached this um i basically just rewatched my 10 best list as it mm. was when i you know that year when it came out and um i just kind of was enjoying going back to some movies that I have a feeling some of them I haven't seen since they came out. Mm, Maybe right. a couple. I'm trying to think. Yeah, there have been a couple that I think that I 
missed out on and just never had a chance to rewatch. So, yeah, you know, that was nice. <laughs> yeah. And it was a year of, uh, of eight, I think it's eight or seven or eight four star review, reviews for uh, you. So that's, me, that's yeah. rare. Yeah, that yeah. is. Yeah. Especially now. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Rare. But yeah. I don't know if that's me or if it's the movies. I don't know. Probably a combination <laughs> of both. Right. Well, uh, let's get started. So what is your number 10? Uh, um, 2007. My number 10 is Paul Verhoeven's Black Book, which is a the story of a Jewish singer in Poland, not in Poland, in Holland, completely different situation, uh, in Holland, <laughs> um, who becomes a spy for the resistance there and gets in very, 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 very close to a, an SS officer um, to try to free some people who have been imprisoned. Um, and man... <laughs> I forgot how wild this movie is. It seems like it's a very, very serious subject. And it is. And Verhoeven treats it with sincerity and with, with the severity that it deserves. But it's Verhoeven. So he's also very much about the sexual dynamics of this relationship. And there's there's actually not that much sex. But there's plenty of nudity and the implication of sex. Um, and plenty of violence as things start to unfold. And so it's this really, really strange feeling of a film that really should possibly be handling the subject without that kind of titillation and without, it seems a little bit exploitative, but it, it's not. It doesn't come across that way when you're watching it because you're so engrossed in this, these twists and turns and these reveals and who's actually playing who in this dynamic. Um, and it has Carice Van Houten, who has since become a bit famous for playing Melisandre on Game of Thrones. Um, and she is just fantastic in this. Um, this was probably the first time I think I had seen her in a film, possibly. At least that I noticed her. Um, she is great in it. And it's, it might not sound like it's a lot of fun, but it is a lot of fun. Because mm. Verhoeven just, he plays it like a fiddle <laughs> in the best possible way. <laughs> And it's all about just, you know, who these characters are and the people that they think they could be and want to be. And then it's also about how this one character just seems to have the absolute worst luck in the world. And there's this horrible irony to the ending, which I won't spoil, but it takes place later on after the events of World War II. And it seems like everything's okay. And that's all I'll say. Um, and it just feels like, and it, it, it really feels like this allegory for not just um, beyond the character, but also like for the persecution of Jews throughout history and how it just continues even to this day, because, you know, we still got some problems I was talking about earlier <laughs> on the different recording. Um, so, yeah, it's really good. It's really enjoyable, despite the, you know, what would seem like the material would not be make it entertaining, but it is. Um, definitely worth checking out. And it was, it was fun revisiting this because I know I watched it at least 10 years, within the past 10 years, but I don't remember when. So it was mm -hmm. nice revisiting that one for sure. Yeah, this is one that would be on a, on a list of honorable mentions. And just like last week, folks, we're not devoting a segment to honorable mentions, but this is definitely on that. Uh, I, I think I saw it, I think I either saw it right after I first watched Total Recall, um, oh, which was sometime in the midst of 
And, you know, it might have been a while uh, because I think that I, I watched Total Recall before the remake. And then I think I might have watched this as well because I was like, oh, yeah, by the way, this is considered really underrated. And I found it, I think, streaming somewhere and at some point and I and I watched it. Yeah, it's it's like you say, I mean, only the director of stuff like Hollow Man and, and Total Recall could do something like this. And pull, yeah, and Robocop. <laughs> exactly. Uh, one of the most subversive action movies ever made. Um could do this material and thread that line uh, in a in a way that was significant and and Van Houten's performance just fantastic yeah uh, fantastic yeah um, really really good movie well my number ten uh, is one that we'll be coming back to I know uh, and this one is probably only on our top ten of two thousand seven I can't think of anybody else who would put this one on there because it's pretty. This looked down upon. Um, it's kind of surprising that it's this low on my list, considering how much I love it. But it's one that we ended up uh, this week watching at the same time, and Twitter <laughs> direct messaging uh, our, each other at this, uh, you know, during the viewing experience. And that is one of the best superhero movies ever made. Uh, certainly top three, five. Certainly, but certainly top five, probably top three. And that is Spider-Man Three. Uh, Sam Raimi's great conclusion to his trilogy about Peter Parker, a.k.a. a certain friendly neighborhood web slinger, um, that was not very well liked for reasons that are, I think, mostly, <laughs> mostly because of the fact that it followed up a movie that was so popular, and that is Spider-Man 2, Um extremely popular and i i love it i know that mark we'll get to mark in a second um (laughs) we'll get to that in a second i love spider-man 2 but this movie is one that is so uh strange to see to watch now in the era of the mcu because i found myself re-watching it the other night and saying like at every turn Man, the MCU wouldn't do that. Um, there's just certain scenes, certain things that they draw out, comedic moments that land, that the character moments that are included that just are not in the wheelhouse of what Marvel's up to currently under the, you know, the producing hand of Kevin Feige, uh, although he was certainly involved in this trilogy. Um, it's, it's just not... Uh, it's just it just doesn't look the same anymore, and for me, I feel like what Raimi was doing with all three of his movies that he made, um, but mostly this one is he's really focusing on character first. Um, even though he is staging a lot of crazy action, and even though he is giving us this really weird, wild, wacky tonal shift, kind of uh, midway to two thirds of the way through. Um, when the character of Peter Parker shifts right along with it, even with all of that, um, the stakes are remarkably human. And so the story here is that he's facing a lot of conflicts. Basically, um, he's loving being Spider-Man. He's loving dating Mary Jane, of course, played by Kirsten Dunst. Um, But he has some stuff come up. For instance, the apparent actual killer of his uncle, uh, a man named Flint Marco, played by Thomas Hayden Church, has escaped from prison and become a part human, part sand menace. Uh, 
Um, meanwhile, his his former best friend Harry Osborne is has decided I'm going to avenge my father by becoming him, and he is now the Green Goblin, and he um, loses his memory in an accident at the end of a truly, truly great action sequence. Um, one of many in the movie that are fantastic. Uh, and f- suddenly he can't remember that he's supposed to be trying to kill Peter. So, of course, uh, eventually the other shoe drops and, you know, but until then, yeah, it's kind of a, uh, a new friendship with, with some really, really uncomfortable dramatic, uh, dramatic irony and then uh and also while all this is happening and seemingly unconnected to any of it really is the fact that an asteroid hits earth and a mysterious black ooze attaches itself to to peter's suit and also to his personality um and it turns him into the worst possible the douchiest possible version of himself uh is how i like to put it (laughs) um (laughs) and it's really true um I mean, it's a lot to explain. It's a lot of plot. It's a lot of movie. Uh, this is about, I think, f- like 15 minutes longer than any of the others, either of the others that Raimi, that Raimi made. So it's a lot of movie. But, man, it works. Uh, the, all, the, all the side characters are given little human moments. Um, uh, maybe except for J. Jonah Jameson, played by J.K. Simmons. But he's just he's J. Jonah Jameson. There's no stopping him, uh, him from from quipping. Um, but I just the little moments here are just fantastic. Uh, you know, I think of like, for instance, he has this landlord who is constantly asking for rent. And when the ooze takes over Peter's personality and he lashes out you would think that the movie would go for some like just a reaction shot and that's it. But no, it actually has the landlord saying he's a good boy. There must be something wrong. And I think that that, that's something that seems to be missing from a lot of more modern superhero movies. It's these little moments that set it apart and just the whole thing just, just is set way above too in terms of just the action sequences are excellent. The performances are fantastic from everybody, it's great casting all around. Um, even Tover Grace, I'm, I'm, I maintain that he's underrated in this. I just, I love it, and uh, yeah. So that is my number ten. Uh, are you going to pass on this one? <laughs> no, pass on this one for right now. Nice, nice, nice. All right, yeah. well, yeah, I didn't but... move. Yeah, I didn't move stuff. <laughs> I'm spoiler for you. I didn't move oh, okay. anything. I've been thinking okay. about one of swapping two of them. I'm not going to. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So. Just a minor spoiler for you. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we'll pass on that for now. All right. Um, Well, well then what's your number nine? My number nine is uh, Lars and the Real Girl, which was definitely a film that I don't think I had seen in quite some time, maybe even like since I picked up the DVD um, after it came out and watched it again then, because man, that was, um, that was fun to revisit again because, oh man, it is so funny. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's not supposed to, and it's it's it there is there are so many ways that they could have done this material for people who don't know this is about ryan gosling's character he is incredibly socially awkward 
he's he got the social distancing down before we were you know <laughs> had to do it he lives in his um brother and sister-in-law's garage which also happens to be his childhood home the home his childhood home the garage of his childhood home and he just refuses to pretty much talk to anybody the the um the sister-in-law is played by Emily Mortimer, keeps inviting him over for dinner and breakfast and whatever. And he'll say, yeah, I'll do it. And then he just sneaks away into the garage. Um, and it turns into what you would think would be like this ribald sex comedy, or at least something that's got its mind in the gutter because he decides he's going to buy a real life love doll, um, an anatomically correct doll, um, full size, life size, doll of a woman and you think this is going to go terribly wrong but instead it's all about how he is just in so much pain and fear and anxiety and worry and just doesn't think anything in life is going to stick around and this is the reason why he does it and it's all about learning that and that how the characters respond you watch as like the entire town comes together to help him out by treating this love doll who um he names oh crap bianca yes correct yes bianca um and they just they treat her like any old person an actual human being and she's they get her to like volunteer at like hospitals and schools and all this and it's it is so sweet and so human and so compassionate. And you don't expect that from this film, which is all about a guy who buys a sex doll as a partner because, you know, he can't talk to real people that well. You don't expect it to be this endearing. And I just, I just really loved it again. Um, and it also has, um, I, I was once again charmed by, Kelly Garner, who plays a woman from Lars's office that he kind of has, you know, a crush on and she clearly likes him. And, you know, he's got a girlfriend now in massive air quotes, girlfriend. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's, it seems like a film that you're going to go into and you know, you think you know what it's going to be like, but it's really not. It's really warm and it's very insightful about Lars as a character. And, I, I really liked it and I still really like it now. So I was glad to see that. I know that that one is streaming on prime because I told mm. you about that. So if you haven't seen yes. it in a while or you have never seen it, check it out. And Gosling is fantastic in it. He is just, he's as funny as he's been in like the other guys. Is that what that one? No, no, nice the guys. nice guys. Thank you. There's <laughs> nice a different guys. movie. Yeah. The nice guys. He's just as funny. He's just an expert at like this comic business going on in the background um yeah check it out yeah it's it's fantastic and i and i did revisit this uh i think they must have just added it on prime because i i think that i was looking through to try to see if i could revisit and i and whenever i did and it was before um april began whenever i did i did not see on uh like justwatchit.com or whatever the thing that letterboxd uses um to track you know where things are viewable i don't remember seeing it before april um, unless I, I don't know. It's I don't know when I got, watched this. <laughs> it's very possible it got added like 
pretty at the end recently. Of the month or something. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's fantastic. This is one where I, you know, I hadn't seen it in so I think I saw it whenever I was living in Indiana for college. And that was, that was a time. A lot of that's a blur for me. And so if I watched anything with like at home or something, I probably don't remember it very well. Uh, so um, yeah, but I was happy to revisit it. It's fantastic. You know, there's a read of the movie that he's autistic. I don't buy that. No, I don't either. But I think, yeah, I, mean, I don't think that Gosling plays it as that either. No. Um, yeah, he's just very, very depressed, severe depression. Yeah. But also really lonely outside of that too. Um, and I think that he's, he's trying to, uh, he's really lonely and doesn't really know how to escape that. And yeah, I love how the movie uses that relationship, not only to, to define him, but like you said, when it turns toward the town kind of becoming sympathetic to this and then also eventually becoming used to it. Yeah. Uh, where the, where the end of the, the, you know, he's got to escape this somehow, this kind of uh, state that he's in. And when that does happen, I, the movie has just incredible sympathy for everything. Yeah. Um, a real sense of empathy. And it's all about empathy. It's one of them. It's really empathetic. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, if you want, it's kind of cringy because of the, because com- of the comedy, but if you want a good, honestly, comfort viewing something where um, it's going to be, it's going to be slightly awkward, I guess, but it's, it's, it really does end well. Yeah. Um, there was somebody on Twitter. Everybody who was like looking for recommendations for whimsical movies about human connection. Mm. And I was like, man, I wish I had remembered who sent that tweet out. So I could have recommended this one. Mm. This would have been perfect for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, my, my number nine uh, is (laughs) uh, so whenever I started this list, um, I know that I had, I think five movies on which Mark and I were going to disagree uh, like outright, not just they're not on Mark's list. They're ones that he didn't really like when he saw them. Oh, this is one that I don't know your thoughts on because I think that you saw it later uh, or something. For some reason, you listed it as an un... Like you didn't review it. You listed it as reference on your site. Um, but my number nine is Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, mm. which is the final, the final film from one of the great American filmmakers of all time, Sidney Lumet, uh, this one is about a, a, a robbery, kind of a, a, an insurance policy-driven robbery um, headed by a pair of brothers played by the late Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke. Um, I probably should, th- should have put their two names in different order because Ethan Hawke's alive. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, it goes horribly, horribly, horribly wrong uh, when they don't realize certain people are going to be in their own, their parents' own store. And it results in the, um, the killing of one of the, or the, the one, yeah, one of the people who goes in there to rob. Um, and also their mother played by interestingly enough, another Spider-Man three star, Rosemary Harris. Um, and it just spirals all way out of control. Um, this is very much in the tradition of some of Lumet's more, uh, I guess, I guess you could say that there's, there's elements in terms of what it's trying to say about humanity. There's definite elements of dog day afternoon in this. It's not a similar situation, but it is, but it does incorporate (laughs) a robbery gone wrong. Um, which is, which is the entire point of dog day afternoon. And it's really just right down his wheelhouse. 
um, trying to say something about the human condition. Uh, his more serious films did that. So love, love this movie. Love the performances from Hoffman and Hawk um, and Michael Shannon and uh, Brian F. O'Byrne and just love everybody. Marissa Tomei is excellent. Um, I, I adore this film. It's devastating. And uh, yeah, it just made a, made a, an, like an immediate impression on me. This was a really good, like period in this part of the decade, particularly for Hoffman, uh, because he had, of course, played the villain in Mission Impossible Three. He had this. He had uh, a movie I haven't seen. I need to see it. But uh, Charlie Wilson's War, which he was nominated for an Academy Award for that one. He had then Doubt and Synecdoche, New York, the following year, which are both great. Both made my top ten of two thousand eight list last week. In my recap, Hawk is one of the great modern American actors, in my opinion. I think the guy is. Doesn't make a, uh, well, I wouldn't say that he doesn't make a bad decision, but he's pretty close to never making one. Um, we'll forgive the purge, but I love him as well. And I, I just, I love this movie so much. Um, and I'm curious what, what was this? Or do, if you remember, cause I don't know if you've seen it <laughs> since then, but I didn't. do you, I do you, do you remember what your problem? No, was? I don't. I really can't. Yeah. You had mentioned it to me like, Oh, you might want to revisit these. And now I really wish I had because. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't remember. Yeah. I remember being like lukewarm on it and I don't know. Mm. I don't remember it enough to tell you even why I was lukewarm about it. So um, yeah, it looks like that looks like one I'm going to be watching maybe over the weekend. Just <laughs> there we go. I will let you it'd know. Be, it would be really interesting, and this I don't even know if this has ever happened, listeners, but it would be really interesting if not only did you like turn around on it, but suddenly you're like, wow, that may have been on my top 10 of 2007. I mean, it's possible. I'm <laughs> no, looking over the cast list yeah. again, and I'm like, oh, man, really? Yeah. This is not only, is, you know, it, not only Hoffman and Hawk, but it's got Marissa Domey and Michael Shannon and Amy Ryan and Albert Finney. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, oh, Albert Finney's great. I don't remember all these people. <laughs> I really don't remember it. I saw it. Yeah, I saw it like probably when it came out, and then yeah, never didn't get a chance to review it, and just was like, eh, okay, okay. So yeah, that'll be fun <laughs> well, to that'll be fun to revisit too. All right, wish I all right. Well, sooner. <laughs> <laughs> right. well, we're around to your number eight, which is now going to sound really weird after that. <laughs> <laughs> My number eight is Spider Man Three. <laughs> Which I also there we go. <laughs> which I also love, and I I yeah, the big thing for me, the reason that Spider Man three for me succeeds more than the other Spider Man movies, like all of them, all of the Spider Man movies, mm-hmm. and most of the superhero movies right now, is that it is entirely focused on Peter Parker as a character. Everything mm-hmm. around this film revolves around Peter Parker and where he is at in this stage of himself being a superhero. And the entire film, I noticed it this time watching it again, it's all about like these people, these characters, having expectations for themselves and either matching them, exceeding them, or not quite living up to them. And it's there are these various stages. So for Peter, as Spider-Man, he has exceeded all of his expectations. He is famous across the city, probably around the world. And everybody loves him. 
But then in his personal life, he's he seems like he's meeting his expectations. He's dating, you know, Mary Jane, which, you know, he wasn't expecting to do up until the end of Spider-Man 2. And in his professional life, he's not quite meeting them. And then the entire film takes all of those expectations that he's exceeding or meeting and just drops them from him. So he loses Mary Jane. He loses his popularity once that symbiote from the meteorite takes over and people start to be like, what's kind of going on. <laughs> and also, you know, uh, Topher Grace's character starts, you know, planning stories about him being, you know, Spider-Man being evil, which he kind of is. He thinks he's killing uh, Sandman during that subway sequence. So it's, it's all about it. And all of the villains, I know the big complaint was that like the villains are too many villains. Cause it's got, you know, Church's Sandman, it's got Grace's eventual Venom, and then it's got, you know, Franco's New Goblin. But all of those have to do with something about Peter. So you got the Church character by having him be Uncle Ben's killer. It's about his old regret and his still kind of desire for revenge, which must be somewhere inside of him, even because otherwise, why would the symbiote bring it out? With uh, Grace's character, he's like a twisted doppelganger of what peter could have been and you know Raimi makes that connection very very clear you know they have the same job they kind of look a little bit alike (laughs) um (laughs) um they're both like kind of desperately in love like for a woman who doesn't seem to notice them too much except that you know uh, grace's character is just you know twisting that to his own benefit in a way he's like you know, he just assumes that he's dating the girl that he's after, but he's not. I mean, he's he's almost like the 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 toxic masculinity of the movie. He is, yeah. That, he that's is. that's and, really what he is. And yeah. eventually, Peter tries to become that, and which mm-hmm. leads to one of the best sequences in the film, which everybody makes fun of. But when Peter Parker tries to be a badass and mm-hmm. fails tremendously, because it's it's so funny. Because that's what Peter Parker would think that being cool would be like is looking like the basis for Fallout Boy and you know, <laughs> just going out and dancing on the street and everybody is looking at him like, What are you doing? <laughs> I yeah. Look, it's it's I, I, I it's maybe a guilty pleasure, but I found a lot to like about it the first time. Enough that I mm. love it, and I also think it's one of the best superhero films ever made. And the few times I've watched it since then, including this week, I still love it. I think it's great. I think it does have those little moments. We were talking about it when Sandman first comes into existence. There's this brief moment where the entire his he's forming out of sand and everything just collapses. Mm. And there's this beat where you're like, nothing's happening. And I don't when we said I don't think any Marvel movie would do that. I don't think any contemporary yeah. Marvel movie would have that little moment of just despair and hopelessness for this character and to treat that, that villain so well. And those special effects still hold up really well. It starts off with like a single grain of sand and then pulls out until he forms himself. It's, it's, I think it's great, but I also really like Superman too. So I like my, I like yeah. my superhero films to be <laughs> weird and goofy and to have, you know, some gravitas to that weirdness and goofiness. And I think this one pulls it off really well. So yeah, my number eight. And, and I mean, and I mean, Hey, Shazam was on your top 10. Shazam was on my top 10 last year too. And I love that one. And that one is also goofy and sincere and weird. And I, 
you know, like I said, keep Shazam weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fabulous, and we probably have lost a bunch of listeners already, yes. but it is it is a great great superhero movie. Uh, all right, so my number eight. I guess people will probably be angry about the fact that it, this is not higher on my list, but because um, it was kind of the almost the cinematic earworm for so many other people, but it's Daryl B. Blood uh, from director Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, and this one is about an oil man who kind of starts dominating uh, the South <laughs> in terms of what, uh, you know, like what oil, um, uh, what places he can, he can just, just take all of the oil, all of it, uh, drink everybody's milkshake as he puts it at one point. Um and this is, of course, also dominated in a, in a certain way by Daniel Day-Lewis, who is terrifying, utterly terrifying in only the way that Daniel Day-Lewis can be, um, as Daniel Plainview, the oil man in, in question. And uh, he comes to loggerheads with a, um, a pastor played by Paul Dano, um, who is trying to... Um, keep his own little ministry alive and 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 it's just it is basically paul thomas anderson in orson welles mode in many ways um this is his citizen kane it's not as like much of a masterpiece as citizen kane is but it's very much his answer to something like that about just this domineering you know uh kind of egomaniacal uh tyrant almost who isn't afraid of you know threatening people's lives to get his way and by the end is not afraid to use violence to to get there um and much was made about the ending which flashes forward several years um i think like a deck a couple decades maybe and um takes everything up an up a notch in weirdness uh, certainly uh, everything ends in a bowling alley <laughs> and uh which is kind of absurd and um, but that's what this whole thing is about. Just, just trying to really make you extremely uncomfortable with following this person for two, two and a half hours plus. Um, I love it. I will say as great as day Lewis is, if I were to have this other person wasn't nominated and I'll get to him in a second, uh, well, later on in the show, if I were to have a best actor, um, lineup, he would actually not be my best actor, but he is very, very close. Um, it's a great performance. It's a towering performance uh, for a lot of people, um, including, I think, in part with you, Mark. Yep. He kind of makes the it, it makes the movie. Yeah, I uh, agree. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a little I think that there's a little more to the movie, too. Uh, not to say you don't, but I'm just saying, like, I think that there's something I really appreciate about what this movie's doing outside of him, too. Um and but of course he's in every scene practically and he's uh it's he's he's amazing uh certainly certainly won that oscar that's his second um yeah. his second oscar and yeah just yeah terrifying second performance for sure so yeah that's my second of three exactly um you know i mentioned last week uh whenever i had tropic thunder on my top 10 of 2008 the whole joke about um, <laughs> uh, Kirk Lazarus, the character, and that being a five-time Oscar winner is <laughs> not not realistic because not even Daniel Day-Lewis has done that. Yeah. Uh, but it's a great joke. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I uh, I love it, and uh, I've, I've you know it's not one that I pop in a lot 
it's a it's very much you got to be in the mood for this um because it's long and it's uh like i said i mean it's really nihilistic even for anderson (laughs) but uh it's it's fantastic so yeah my number eight there will be blood yeah so um yeah if you think people are gonna be mad because uh it's so (laughs) low on your list it's not even on my list so oh well (laughs) i know i I know but it wouldn't I like it. And it wouldn't be, and it wouldn't be. Either. No, it wouldn't have been. I watched it. Yeah. Um, I rewatched it after seeing the master cause I did like a, uh, a podcast about, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson films and I rewatched mm-hmm. it then. And I'm like, yeah, it's, I, I, I like it quite a bit, but yeah, it's yeah. not, yeah, it's not for me. Not on my it's top not 10. Material top list. List. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, day Lewis is fantastic. It's, it looks amazing. It's a, great character study just you know um got a lot of ideas about you know ideology and religion and capitalism and those capitalism kind of becoming a religion for the character and i am yeah and i i enjoy it so Mm. you know i don't know what to say it's it's, one of those that just didn't hit me as much (laughs) right right it's it's a bit forbidding there's there's a there's a sort of a distancing effect that it has on you too because i mean you have to be and and I totally get that. You know, for me, it, it hit harder, but it's, but it does have that. I mean, it's a very cold movie. Yeah. Um. Very very cold to the touch. So yeah. Um, yeah. And intentionally right. so, well, though. But I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. 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 For sure. All right. Your number seven. My number seven is Michael Moore's Sicko, which I definitely had not seen since I saw it in theaters. So this one was, this one was revealing <laughs> to watch in 2020. <laughs> Because, right. and in the middle of a global pandemic, it was especially fascinating to watch. And I, man, you know what? So I know a lot of people don't like Michael Moore. I know they don't. Mm. I know it's all political. I know he's a very, he's, he's a very divisive figure. And I know that even like within like the circle of the left and with liberals, he's kind of fallen a little bit out of favor. And I don't quite know why. Um, I always... I'm looking at him as a filmmaker and I think he's very bright, very intelligent, very funny. And so I generally like his films up until I think about this one is when I stopped kind of like loving them because I think he kind of got a little bit too into the gags and not so much into the ideas. This one is definitely, I think for me, the last one that really dives into a topic and the topic happens to be healthcare in the United States which makes it quite relevant, as I said today. <laughs> and it is all about how the healthcare system in the United States came to be as a private enterprise with health insurance companies, basically, you know, setting up people to tell them what services they can and cannot get. And, you know, basically the death panels that everybody was mad about when we were talking about um, Obamacare back in the day. It's, you know, just a reminder that we actually do have death panels. They're just not the government. They're private industry, which we can't vote out of office. Anyway, the point being, it's it, it really gets into detail. And I think a lot of people who don't like more might get even get something out of this film because more isn't on screen for about half of the film he narrates it but he doesn't put himself into the movie which i think is an interesting choice because he before this one he puts himself into his films quite a bit roger and me is all about him 
going throughout Flint, Michigan, his hometown, trying to see the um, the CEO of General Motors. And Bowling for Columbine features him a lot too. You see him, you know, not only doing his publicity stunts, but you also see him in his guerrilla theater stuff, but you also see him in the during the interviews. And it was very strange watching this again because I thought he was very prevalent throughout the film just as he has been in his other ones, but he's not. The first half of the film is mainly about just people who are being screwed over by the health insurance companies. And I think the fact that he does not put himself into the film directly shows that he genuinely thinks this is a problem uh, as it is um, and doesn't want to distract from that problem with his presence, either as a filmmaker, as an interviewer, as a jokester, as a divisive political figure. He just wants those stories to exist and to be told without anybody being able to say, well, it's Michael Moore telling this story, so I'm not really going to buy into it as much as I would. It's, it's, it's devastating to hear some of these things. And it still is devastating to hear them, even though, you know, this documentary is 13 years old um, and it's still going on. And, you know, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, if this global pandemic doesn't say that the entire health insurance industry needs to be uh, revised or done away with entirely for something different. I mean, I don't know what will. So it was, it was very uh, enlightening to watch this now. It was also, uh, just on a side note, it was also enlightening to see him visit countries that are also going through this and to see how even the countries that have, you know, universal health care, like in, like in the UK with the National Health Service or in France or even, you know, any of those European countries, and they're still having problems with this. So if they've been having problems with this and they have a better grasp on making sure that citizens get health care not whether or not they, the question of whether or not they have health insurance. I do wonder if we're in for a really rude awakening when it comes mm. down to this thing uh, hitting its apex. I don't know, but we'll find out. Hopefully not. Obviously, I hope, genuinely hope that we can resolve this with the system we have in place, but we'll see what happens. And I, I, it's a little concerning, just on a side note see yeah because you know you're watching like stuff in the uk and how great the health insurance is you know the health care is there and everybody gets in and gets out and you know like you still know that there's a pandemic going on people are dying and even with the Mm -hmm. system like that it's still happening so we'll see yeah i mean i I had rewatched this and i posted something on facebook it's like you know, it claims to be a 2007 movie, but it's really the best movie of 2020 so far. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, just, you know, within the last week, I think, uh, who knows what time and space mean anymore, but <laughs> I think it was within the last week, a uh, teenager died um, here in the States died of coronavirus because he was not covered and thus could not get in uh, to the, you know, to be treated for it because everything is so screwed up here. And, I mean, it's just so revealing to see the almost like mocking <laughs> ways that people that that people from outside the U.S. in yeah. this documentary react like somebody just being like, uh, wait, what do you mean they had to choose between his his fingers yeah. to save? You know, like that thing is just it's it's almost like they're like, oh, my God. Yeah. What is this person talking about? It's just it's a completely foreign concept. And yeah, it is, it's really devastating. And it fell outside my list. Uh, you know, whenever I was trying to like 
go back through and there's just there's just ones that I couldn't I couldn't yeah. uh, take out for this one, but it's in my 11 through 15. So it's you know I do there's some of his I haven't seen yet. I haven't seen the big one uh, from the 90s. I haven't seen uh, or whatever that was called. I haven't seen um, the one that you're not a fan of. Uh, where where to invade? Oh, where next. to invade next? I was actually talking yeah. about. I was talking about after rewatching. I was talking to my wife about where to invade next because it's almost. It has a similar premise, but it just mm. doesn't work as well for me. Right, right. Yeah. And then um, also have not seen Capitalism Love Story, although I do. That one is very funny. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's that one yeah. is just I think for laughs, <laughs> but it's but funny. but in terms but in terms of the ones that I've seen, I love this one, and I'm fine. I'm glad I finally got it uh, right before my store closed. That's another big thing that happened this week. My store closed temporarily, and I was able to get this or rent this before I uh, I was you know. Uh, all that happened, but um, I also, you know, really like Fahrenheit 9-11. I thought Fahrenheit 11-9 was fine plus, kind of. Uh, <laughs> not, yeah, not not great. Not nearly as good as Fahrenheit 9-11. Um, and Bowling for Columbine, great. I know that you feel really strongly about that one. Yeah, um, but Roger and Me is one of the best movies ever made. Cool. Uh, certainly one of the best documentaries ever made. I think it's it's the best thing I've seen him do. And, um, yeah, love that one. So yeah, just, uh, really talented filmmaker. Um, and for sure, this is, this is <laughs> one heck of a movie. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, my number seven, I know is going to show up later on, on your list. Um, and that is Juno from director Jason Reitman, uh, possibly his best movie, possibly, um, probably, although, yeah, up and up in the air. Up in the air I, is I also pretty, great. Mm. Yeah, okay. um, I do. I I do also like one that that Mark does not like, yeah. uh, which is young adult. Yeah. But anyway, um, this one is about a teenager played by Ellen Page who finds out that she is pregnant uh, by her boyfriend played by Michael Cera. Uh, big year for him because he was also coming right off super bad. Um, just a couple months later, in fact, and, um, uh, decides that she's, you know, well, I should say has to decide what she's going to do. Um, and the movie's about her journey to kind of get to, um, you know, a certain place about it and decides ultimately that adoption is what she's going to do. And, uh, the couple that, that is potentially looking into that is played by Jason Bateman and Jennifer Garner, um, a great Jennifer Garner, um, who is fantastic here. All of the, I mean, the big story about this movie back when it came out was, was Ellen Page, who was nominated for an Oscar, lost uh, to, to everybody's like surprise, which was Marion Cotillard, but she was nominated. It was, it was her first nomination. I mean, the most significant thing that she had really done was be Kitty Pride and the X-Men, uh, the X-Men movies. And um, so this was kind of her big breakthrough and she is tremendous in this movie, uh, which, you know, the reference points to, you know, a lot of the dialogue written by Diablo Cody is very quirky, very much referential. Um, All of those are kind of dated, uh, in terms of the fact that a lot of that lingo is stuff that with the advent of 
Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of that has kind of gone, gone away. Uh, but the same thing pretty much happened with Mean Girls until people brought it back. Movies like this where they pretty much make catchphrases that, are, <laughs> that become part of the lexicon, they'll die down and come back. I have a feeling that there's going to be a comeback period for this particular movie, but whatever it is, it's still incredibly rich dialogue that understands how its characters use that dialogue. Uh, this was, I believe, Roger Ebert's top film of that year, and it was because of the fact that it was so – the characters were so richly developed – um, the comedy was just hit so hard and often and successfully. Um, it's a really funny movie. Uh, one of the, uh, probably the funniest of 2007. Um, yeah, I love it. And Reitman really knows how to use a camera. I mean, he's making fairly modest, uh, scaled movies, but he is, when he's on, he's really on. And this is, this is one of his more, obviously, one of his more successful endeavors. He's kind of struggled in recent years, I think. But, um, you know, and we'll see what happens when he takes on a big movie like Ghostbusters Afterlife. But still, I, I love the guy. And um, the run that he had from Thank You for Smoking to this to Up in the Air, for me, to Young Adult, is really something. Um, yeah, so... Love it. Uh, I can't believe it's only my number seven, <laughs> but uh, but it is. It's great, and um, I think I saw this one like three times in theaters. Uh, pretty sure, yeah. I think I saw it three times, and it worked every single time. It's worked since then. I own it now because I work at a place where I, I was able to buy it. Um, and yeah, it's really funny, really charming, really honest, um, really. Empathetic. I come back to that word very much like Lars and the Real Girl in that way. A lot of cringe comedy in it, but it's a very empathetic movie. And um, yeah, love it. So that is my number seven is Juno. Uh, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that you're going to pass I on this. I also love it. And that's why I'm going to pass yeah. on it for now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stop, Until part... stop trying to make Wizard a thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love it. I love everybody in the movie too, by the way. I should have mentioned that the cast. Yeah. Olivia Olivia Thurlby is great as the friend. Uh, J.K. Simmons and Allison Janney, just yeah. uh, you know, two two future best supporting acting winners. There, um, it happened in the in the following decade. I, I yeah, yeah, it's just it's it's fantastic. So, all right, well, what is your number six? Uh, my number six is I think uh, Ang Lee's most underrated film and most overlooked film too, because it's a long one, um, and a lot of people didn't hear about it when it came out, and that's Lust Caution, which um, is also a spy thriller about a young woman who goes into it. It's weird. It's going back to Black Book. It gets into a sexual <laughs> relationship with a collaborator with uh, Japan uh, in China during World War II. And I, I, I hadn't remembered much of this except that I loved it, and Oh man, I watching it again. I turned on the Blu-ray, and first off, the Blu-ray that I have is from is a foreign, is an import, and holy crap, it just struck me like there's an opening sequence with a, a mahjong table that is just so bright. The table is so bright, and the costuming is so evocative and colorful, and the dialogue and the camera movements are so just 
just moving all over the place and getting you introduced to the story there at the moment doesn't have anything, but you can see this sort of power dynamic forming between this, this group of wives as they're trying to not only win a game of Mahjong, but they're also trying to, you know, determine like who's got the best prices on stuff and who do you know? And who do you know? And the entire film turns out to be kind of like a bigger version of that in which everybody is trying to figure out what everybody else wants and nobody knows exactly what it is and what, you know, and lots of betrayals and lots of secrecy. And the, the big, the big, the plot itself is about um, a woman played by Wei Tang, who unfortunately was blacklisted from China after this film. The only person in China who was blacklisted from basically making movies again after this, um, which says something about uh, the inherent sexism in certain places and certain parts of the world. Um, but she is um, a young woman who is a college student and joins like a drama club with some other people. And after they do this propaganda um, piece against the Japanese and in favor of, you know, China being victorious in, in the war, um, they decide that they're going to become little resistance members and they don't know what they're doing. They have these big ideals and they have these big ideas about what to do. And the rest of the film is seeing how all of that buildup and all that idealism really turns out to be um, nothing and inadequate within the realm of reality. There's the turning point for it is there's a scene where the group is about to be caught by someone that they know who's involved um, with the collaborationists and they have to take him out and they do so in this really brutal and violent and bloody scene that just goes on for so long that it's it's painful to watch um and that's that's the turning point and then everything kind of falls to the side and then uh uh, Wei Tang's character comes back and she is trying to seduce this man who is who had started off as like a businessman in Hong Kong and now he is in Shanghai and he has become like a major figure in the uh, collaborator government in China and so she's trying to take him out she's trying to kill him and they end up in this really intense um, sexual relationship which um is also very uncomfortable to watch at first because their first encounter is definitely not consensual. Um, mm. And it builds from there and it's kind of, and it, what, those scenes, it got an NC 17 rating. And I think that's another reason why people haven't seen it that much just because, you know, a lot of theaters probably couldn't play it when it came out. Um, but you watch as these two kind of learn about each other, even though Wei Tang is, character is pretending to be somebody else she's kind of showing parts of herself that she didn't really know about and uh the the collaborator is played by um tony luang who's fantastic i i had mm. forgotten how great his performance is he starts off like as this this you know like very vibrant alive man this businessman who's all up to get everything that he wants uh, in hong kong and when you show up and when he shows up in shanghai he's just he looks defeated and hollow you can sense that there's just something missing from him that's that's not there and the entire film is about building up also how he has fallen apart 
by being a collaborator. And the big question is where their loyalties actually lie. Is it to each other for her? Is it to him or to the, to the resistance movement? And for him, is it to her or to the collaborators? And it does not end the way you think it's going to end. That's all I'll say. And it's a devastating ending in a way that I don't want to spoil, but man, you get to see everybody's true colors by the end. And it's not a pretty picture. Yeah, this is a fantastic movie. I just caught up with this. Uh, thanks to a friend who lended me, lent to me that same Blu-ray, the, the one that you have. And um, one, it looks gorgeous. This is Rodrigo Prieto shooting this, which is um, great. And uh, Alexandre Desplat scored it. Beautiful score. Oh my gosh. Um, and yeah, man, this thing is this thing is a twisted ride, and I mean, or twisting ride, I should say. It really takes you all over the place. Um, and I will say, so I <laughs> about an hour into the movie, an hour and a half. I did message you and say, you know, I'm feeling maybe another another change to the list. It didn't quite make my list, but it is number 11. There you it's go. Number 11. And I was trying to force it in there, but man, it's just a really competitive year, you know. Um, but everything you're saying is, is fantastic. Yeah. And I, you hadn't, I, I, hadn't seen it, so I'm glad you did because yeah, yes. not a lot of people have seen this. Right, right. It is very overlooked. Uh, and, and also Mark asked me, you know, easily – Ang Lee's most underrated. I would say it's his most overlooked. It's the one that people really need to seek out. Um, there's one that you're not a fan of that I that I do I do think is more underrated in terms of uh, what I think the response to it should be, and that is Hulk. But the mm. fact that the fact that he went from a wuxia like martial arts movie yeah, with Crouching Tiger to a big epic superhero movie to the to Brokeback Mountain. Um, to this, and then to something like taking Woodstock, which I haven't seen, but you know, just that that trajectory through the decade is really something. Yeah, uh, really, really something. And yeah, he uh, is a he's a unique filmmaker. Yes, <laughs> he doesn't seem to care. Like he doesn't seem yeah. to have like that one for me, one for you thing. He just kind of everything, even the ones that seem like one for the studio, mm. they, they seem to be very personal to him. <laughs> they, yeah, you know, it's. Yeah, yeah Jim, Jim and I man's probably the exception that felt a little a little anonymous, but yeah, but even uh, then he was he the what he did he, with it in terms of like the frame rate and everything. Yes, it's like yeah. he was he was doing that for a reason, person yeah. very personal to him about how yeah, for sure. how much he could expand his range and and that, what that was that that was the follow up to something like Life of Pi, which I think yeah. has the best three D of all time. Um, yeah, really and, then he, and of course like the ice storm and sense and sensibility and, you know, just, yeah, it's just crazy. The, the guy's a, a master filmmaker and uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was tough leaving this off, but it is, it's great. It's great. Well, my number six is another one that we're going to get to later on, uh, on Mark's list. Uh, and that is a movie that I just discovered as well this week. Um, thankfully um, before, I guess Mark, like, I don't know, put a hit on my life or something. And that is uh, because I had seen this director's other two movies uh, from this past decade. And I loved one of them and I kind of liked the other one. And that is once from director John Carney. Uh, this is the musical starring Glenn Hansard and Marketa Irglova about a vacuum salesman. Um, and I forgot what she is, but she anyway is, Oh, I forget. 
Yeah, she does something. Anyway. It's not important. It's not important. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they mention it. They mention it briefly, and do. it's not really important. Right. We never see her at that job. Yeah. Um. They they kind of connect over his music, and she's a musician as well. They decide to get together and they make music, and that's that's the plot. And they kind of, sort of, slowly fall in love, kind of. Uh, except that there's certain limitations, uh, particularly the fact that she's married, even though her husband is back in um, uh, Czech, Czechoslovakia, I think, um, and is going to be coming back pretty soon, or coming to Ireland uh, pretty soon. And um, the, I mean, the main story of this movie is the music, which you know won an Oscar. Um, against against heavy competition from Disney that year with three songs from Enchanted nominated uh, and the song Falling Slowly which comes about I was surprised how early I think it's like 25 minutes into the movie which uh, beautiful song there's there's a couple of other songs here uh, if you've seen Begin Again which is his movie with Keira Knightley and Mark Ruffalo and you've seen Seeing Street uh, you pretty much know you probably will know what you're getting into in terms of just um the fact that it's that that it leans heavily into the music that's originally written for the movie itself and all of that but man this one is really good uh and yeah i mean i i know that you've been crazy about this one for 13 years now um yep. right after in fact this is funny we're we're actually talking about the year in which i uh, discovered Mark's website, um, which happened with Spider-Man three. And I was, I was on and off in terms of actually reading the website for a little while, just cause I was in transition between 11th and 12th grade at, in high school. So I really wasn't, I, I was concerned about other things, but whenever I, whenever I did come back and I saw the once review, I knew, okay, so this is kind of this little movie that, that, that could kind of, situation where everybody was extremely satisfied with it and really really enthusiastic and i was like man i gotta see that and then i just i don't know it never released here at that time and it escaped me in the years since and even with his other movies coming out and me seeing them i just i just never saw this and i was really happy to the performances uh both the musical ones and just the performances given by uh hansard and Interglova are fantastic you know this is also partly famous because they dated for a couple of years after this movie this is the kind of movie that put them together for just a couple of years although they've since gone off and had other relationships now um since then uh but it has that kind of strong you can understand like making this movie might have made them want to date you know there's there's just that chemistry between the characters and this very very small movie very small movie made for, I think, an, an equivalent of like $50,000 in the U.S. Um, or something is, yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's really, really wonderful. And uh, I love it. So I know that we're going to be coming yep. back to this oh, one, another, yeah. another movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is my, that is my number six. It's going to be a little bit higher on Mark's list. And now we are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to give you our choices for films five through one. Uh, and this will be fun because there's going to be two instances of disagreement 
uh, going to be happening. Uh, that is if that is if Mark remembers the movies in, in question. But yeah, we'll see what uh, happens on that one. <laughs> we'll see what happens. But uh, but yeah. So uh, guys, we'll be right back. Just stay tuned. You're going to hear an ad or music. I don't know what you'll hear. Probably an ad. And uh, we'll be back in just a second. So stay tuned. Hey, everybody, welcome back. And you just heard our picks for from 10 to 6. First half of our picks for the best films of 2007 on this special episode devoted to all you out there who are stuck at home in this weird world that we're in right now. Um, and once again, I'm joined by Mark Dusick of Mark Reviews Movies. Um, and we're here talking about our favorite films of 2007 is a really rich year. A lot of really great movies. We've already talked about some of them and, uh, was, I guess, nine of them roughly. And, uh, yeah, so let's, let's get on with it. So Mark, what is your number five and hello? (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Again. (laughs) And again. Yes. (laughs) So my number five is, uh, Billy Ray's Breach. Um, it is about Robert Hansen, who is an FBI agent, was an FBI agent, it's definitely not anymore, was an FBI agent who um, was responsible for the largest security breach in the history of the United States. Um, so basically, and this isn't really a spoiler because um, the film starts off with a little prologue explaining what happens, but he was uh, selling secrets to, at first, the Soviet Union, and then when the Soviet Union fell to Russia. And the film seems like it's going to be a spy thriller, and it has Ryan Felipe playing a young FBI agent who at first is tasked by Laura Linney's character, she's great in this as a side note, uh, to investigate Hanson for sexual deviancy um, in terms of things going on uh, at the office and at home. And as uh, Felipe's character starts to learn about Hanson, he kind of grows to admire and respect him. And it takes a bit to understand, even though we got to explain in the prologue, it takes a while for Felipe's character to understand what the full scope of the investigation actually is. And the entire film, despite looking like a thriller, is actually this really in-depth character study of Robert Hansen, who Cooper plays as this devoutly religious and patriotic man except that he is a complete paradox because he is also a traitor to his country and to pretty much everybody that he knows and the the key of the film is that ray doesn't condemn the man or condone what he did and it's this really delicate balancing act where you despite everything that's wrong with him you can see that he has at least some respect for the institutions. He, the, the, the film takes place um, in the early part of 2001, and Hansen is bringing up these issues about how different services within different agencies within the government aren't sharing information. And as we all know now, that was part of the reason that 9-11 happened was that agencies weren't able to share information, and he has this plan to try to do that. So you can see that there's something to him that is patriotic, genuinely patriotic, but you don't know if that's the reason that he's selling secrets to the Russians, like to set up, you know, an, an, a situation where people would realize that. And the film doesn't tell you why. 
it never tells you why. It's directly in the text that the why doesn't really matter in terms of the story that's being told and the story that actually happened in real life because the man is a traitor and he's now serving like multiple life sentences in a supermax prison. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a r- really fantastic character study. Cooper is probably gives the best performance of the year in this. And what's amazing is that mm, he wasn't nominated for anything. He, he wasn't nominated for an Oscar. He wasn't even nominated for the Globe. The critics associations even overlooked him. I think he won like an AARP award. I think that's it. And it's <laughs> weird, but it's, it's such an amazing performance. Felipe is great here too. It's a, it's a good reminder that he can, he can do really good work when given the chance. Um, it's, it's a great film. Unfortunately, it's not available to stream anywhere, but um, probably around the time this episode comes out it will be available for the first time on blu-ray and i will be picking that one up especially since mm. like i said as, as i've been saying i loved revisiting this and i'm hoping i get to watch it again sooner rather than later because yeah mm. it's like a great one yeah i i do need to let i haven't told my dad this he loves this movie uh and i love this movie as well I haven't told him that it's on blu-ray but i'm sure that he's gonna want to get that um as well because it's it's one of his favorites it's Fantastic. It's not on my list. It's right outside it. It's it's once again in this 11 through 15 arena, 11 through 20. And Cooper's great. Great, great, great. Um, yeah, they marketed this all wrong. I think they marketed this as kind of a born, <laughs> you know, another born movie. Um, and it just, it's not that at all. It's yeah. a lot deeper than that. And um, yeah, I mean, it came out in February, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, really early February too, I think the first week. And uh, yeah, it has has that in common with my number five, in that it just was completely overlooked um, and definitely did not deserve that. Um, my number five is you know I, I just alluded to the fact that it's a February release. It was dumped in the weekend with Ghost Rider and Music and Lyrics, and those movies overtook it at the box office. And it's really sad because it's towers over both of those. Although I do like Music and Lyrics quite a bit but my number five is a truly special family film and a family film in the traditional sense of that term and that is bridge to terabithia um this one comes from director gabor chupo who adapts a novel by Catherine patterson um one of the screenwriters is her son david and the other one is john stockwell and this one um, stars josh hutcherson and anna sophia robin i guess kind of breakout breakthrough roles for them um and they are uh, a pair of kids who are who meet each other in class. He's he's very lonely. Doesn't have a lot of friends, but does have a lot of bullies. He lives kind of in financial straits with his parents, played by Robert Patrick and Kate Butler, um, who you know really don't seem to understand him very well. He's a budding artist, and his and his father kind of looks down on that. Doesn't make time for him. And then he meets Leslie, played by Rob, who is very is kind of who's kind of weird in in a lot of very uh, interesting ways and, and introduces him to this concept of using your imagination to bring things to life within your own head. And so together they build this world called Terabithia um, where they incorporate a lot of the disappointing mundane aspects of their lives uh, into the various fantastical things that are going on around them. And it's a really special movie. It's not the Chronicles of Narnia type thing that it was, that it was heavily advertised as, 
It's one of the worst advertising campaigns for any Disney movie I've seen. Uh, they really bungled this one, and I don't think that they would have done that now. Um, I think that they were in a worse place when this came out than they are right now. And they really try to tie this into, you know, um, here's a little bit of fantasy world stuff for you. But it's not that. It is a movie about um, a kid coming to the realization that he uh, that that he really needs – basically, he comes to grips with reality in the worst possible way. And in fact – Mark, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spotlight here, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. just a little bit, because I'm going to, bit. I'm going to quote you back to you. Um, <laughs> so, oh no! <laughs> your review, uh, it's a great review, guys. And uh, this, it says this. Um, this, this is basically alluding to something that happens. Let's say a complication. We're going to put it in the in the best way possible. Um, a complication occurs, and here's here's what here's what. Someone named Mark Dusick. This is how he. Uh, this is how he put it. The friendship is torn asunder. The weight of it drops. The results are devastating. It's in the film's final act that achieves a, that it achieves a wide sense of the world. And I think that that really kind of sums it up. Uh, it reminded me in certain ways, or at least the later film reminded me of this one in certain ways. Um, the Florida Project, I think, would make a good double feature with this in in various ways because it shows how kids play in order to make while also being very um perceptive of the of the real world if you will the world around them um and in this one it really comes at jess in very very like really devastating ways in the final act um and the movie is honest enough to deal with all of that in a really realistic way um yeah it's great and it's completely forgotten like i said it came out in february you know, very few people, if like maybe us <laughs> and one person has this on their top 10 of 2007, but it's worth remembering. It's great. Uh, Hutcherson is great. He had been great already, though. He had done this little movie. I don't even know if you've seen this one, but it's I worth- have not seen it, but I know about uh, it. <laughs> yeah. Little Manhattan. Um, yeah. Oh, man. It's fabulous. Uh, and he was great in that. And this was this was kind of the one that he made right after that. Um, shot right after that and it's yeah it's it's fantastic so that is my number five is bridge to terabithia and i'm assuming Man. we're gonna get to that one later <laughs> i am so confused now i don't know what your list is gonna look like because i'm looking at the rest <laughs> of my list i'm like you've already gone over oh man i've already gone over three quarters of it but so mm-hmm. i have no clue what the next wow okay <laughs> all right so and yeah, we'll, we'll hold off on that one. So jumping back to an earlier <laughs> pick from Joel, my number four is Juno, which, oh man, I, I loved rewatching this. And I don't, mm. oh man, I, yeah, I, I love this film and I love the character. And I, I, you know, yeah, I said, I made that joke about stop trying to make wizard a thing because it does, <laughs> Cody's, Cody's dialogue is very, it's very it's very particular and it's mm-hmm. it's it it tries it definitely tries you can sense her trying and the thing that i think that makes this one work as well as it does is that there is that all that obvious effort of trying to fit in all these cultural references and all these musical references and all of this all this like you know quirky dialogue that doesn't really exist in the real world nobody ever says anything like that but the reason that it works in this one so well is this thing is cast to perfection from top mm-hmm. to bottom <laughs> Ellen Page 
it, if there's one actor who knows how to sell Cody's dialogue, it is Ellen Page. Mm-hmm. She nails it perfectly because there is the sense from her performance that she is too smart for her own good and too dumb in ways that she shouldn't be. Um, it's, it is such a finely honed performance. And I, the reason I say it, she's too smart for her own good, because she is, she has like all these references from things like to music from like before her time. Like she talks about Iggy and the Stooges and stuff. It's like, what 16 year old girl in the early two thousands was talking about Iggy pop. Nobody, <laughs> but this is, her, that's her character. But then there are also times when she is like the, um, I think you went over the plot well enough. Jennifer Garner's character asks, um, oh, what is it? What's, 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 what's he like or something? Mm. And she's, she's like, well, I don't know what the baby, because I haven't met it yet. I don't really know it yet. And <laughs> you think maybe it's a joke because she is so sarcastic and so full of moxie, but it's not. She genuinely thought that Carter's character was talking about the baby that hasn't been born yet. And it, those little tiny moments really endear the character to us in because she is just a teenager and and like I said, I think only Paige can sell that and understands the ways that Cody's screenplay really illuminate all of these characters in different ways. Um, J.K. Simmons is fantastic. Ellison Janney is fantastic. Yeah, Thoroughby is fantastic. Sarah is really funny. It's just oh, oh, and Jennifer Garner is just, oh, fab, oh, fabulous. Oh, she is amazing in that. Yeah, she should have and been. Watching, no, she should have been nominated for that. She should have been nominated. one yeah. for that. Yeah, it's, probably so. She is so great because she seemed at first. She seems like this, like really just you know, overly just I, anal. <laughs> Like right. in terms of like just like every particular detail has to be right, and you're like, I kind of annoyed with this woman, but then you really get really get into the heart of it is that she is just desperate, 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 desperate to be a mother, and there is so much longing and so many like heartbreaking moments of her just not feeling like she's going to live up to that role, the role that she's wanted to play her entire life. It is a fantastic performance. And Jason Bateman as her husband is just great because you, he seems like the really cool, charming one at first. And then you kind of realize what a, you know, douchey is. Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. And he's really good at playing that. <laughs> so Yeah. He keeps it, he keeps it slightly sympathetic. Like there, yeah. like there's, there's a twist, there's a turn. And yeah. you you definitely think less of him, but you don't think so much less of, of him that he becomes like a villain yeah. or he's whatever, been, right? And he's been like, yeah, he's been like that the entire time, and it's mm-hmm. not like they're you know, it's not like he's lying about it, or or even you know, Garner's character is lying about it because there's that one moment, like you know, something we tried to do something like this before mm-hmm. and it didn't work out, and then it, uh, I think she or he, one of them says, and then the other one confirms. They just say cold feet. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get the you get the understanding like oh they're not talking about like the mother of you know the baby who's going to be adopted they're talking about oh okay I get it but man it and it's a lot funnier than I remembered it being I remembered it being funny but man it is really funny when it's when it's moving on all cylinders and it's moving on all cylinders quite a bit yeah I don't <laughs> I 
I don't get like I, 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 this seems to have fallen out of favor with people. I don't quite understand why. It's yeah, the dialogue I, is. I guess it's the dialogue. It's it's, it's got to be the dialogue. Yeah, but. probably just the like I I was um, saying before. I think it's just the advent of Twitter and Facebook language kind of shifted beyond what a lot of these characters are saying, which for a while was a lot of what people were saying. And it's interesting that that it didn't happen to this, but it did happen to Mean Girls again. Because yeah, Mean, mean Girls, mean girls yeah. had a lot of that uh, that language too, where it just became, you know, part of the lexicon. And then when Facebook started and, and all of that and started really taking off, people were talking about October 3rd and, and quoting all of that stuff from Mean Girls and it just hasn't happened to this. And I have to wonder if yeah. it will. Yeah, I hope it will. It'd be nice. Yeah. It would be nice to have this come back because, yeah, yeah, it's great. And, yeah, maybe it's, it's either this or Up in the Air. Mm-hmm. Either of those is Reitman's best film. Yeah. And that's another one. Another filmmaker who's fallen out of favor very quickly. Yeah. I don't know what happened to him. Yeah. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't either. It, yeah, he's, he nails it here. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, my number four is uh, <laughs> another oh boy. Uh, disagreement. Um, although I don't know if he remembers it very well. But it is uh, Andrew Dominic's The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Uh, this is a meditative, yeah, it's the, this is, this is a meditative Western, um, that stars Casey Affleck as Robert Ford, who joins Jesse James group of bandits and then kind of starts resenting him and leads him to an act of violence. And Jesse James is played by Brad Pitt. Um, and yeah, I was really struck. I mean, I haven't seen this in a while, this one in a while. I didn't get a chance to revisit it. It's pretty long. First of all, it's about two hours and 45 minutes. Um, so just, I just didn't have time, but, um, yeah, well, I guess that sounds dumb now because we're all in lockdown. I did have time. I just didn't take the chance. I was trying to catch up with some of these others, but, uh, but it's just absolutely intoxicating to watch. Um, the the cinematography is by Roger Deakins. We're gonna we're gonna circle back to him uh, <laughs> on this list in a little bit, but it's got this painterly quality that is just absolutely stunning to watch. It's some of his best work up there with great Deakins work, like another movie on this list, um, or like Fargo, or like The Village. That is uh, just really utilizes his qualities of. Uh, making everything look like a painting. Um, and I just, I love it. Uh, and of course, later on with films like Dunkirk, uh, not Dunkirk, uh, <laughs> 1917 um, and uh, and Blade Runner 2049. I just, yeah, I mean, the story, it's like a great novel. It, it, it was a novel. It's based on a novel. And it is, um, it unfolds with the patience and the, the, uh, the distinct care of a novel, the, the way that Dominic tell like lets this story unfold um, just with its own pacing. It's not in a hurry. It's not trying to appease anybody with its pacing. Um, if you think that this is going to be like some fast paced true grit thing, it's not, it's, it is very patient. It's very quiet, but it is gorgeous, 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 gorgeous. Um, and that's 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 hard to accomplish. That um, it's hard to accomplish that at the at the caliber that Deacons and Dominic do here, just on a visual level. And I mean, I guess if I'm talking about it a little too much from that level, 
that's fine. But you know, <laughs> as, as That's why everybody talks about. Yeah, about. I mean, I mean, I mean, <laughs> Mark, I'm going to quote Brian Tallarico here. Um, but film, <laughs> film is a visual medium, and I think that that yes. yeah, I mean, you can't discount that um, so well, easily here. Uh, it is, it is truly tremendous in that regard. But I think it just it also carries the weight of a tragedy uh, really, really well, and an extended tragedy that is. Dis- that is increasingly uncomfortable to watch. Uh, and then once that moment occurs, once the thing in the title that makes up the title occurs, then it goes on for like another half an hour. And it's just, it's, it's crucial. It's a crucial half hour. And I just, I love it. So yeah, it's, it's an epic that I love. Um, Mark didn't like it. Yes, yeah, I didn't. He's, he's, and you talk about it. <laughs> the way you talk about it, it sounds like a right in my wheelhouse, yeah. but yeah, I did not connect to it. I just found it gorgeous, but kind of shallow. Mm. And I just, you know, but you, you know, the way you talk about it, it's like, oh man, it's just painterly compositions and patient meditative western about the toll of violence and everything and you're like yeah that sounds like it's right up my alley this was not up my alley at all i could not i couldn't take it just it's too much just in just in and the yeah, in the wrong alley man uh <laughs> i'm just kidding yeah apparently it's <laughs> yeah i was next door when i went to go see it apparently yeah it's, it's one i it's one i probably should rewatch and just see if maybe something clicks but it did not mm. it did not click for me when i saw it Strange, um, strange human. Yeah, I know it is. It's weird, and I liked um, Dominic's uh, follow-up, killing them. Yeah, softly, yeah, so. that's my that's my number one, probably of twenty twelve. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I this one just it, it I did not connect to it. I, and, I can't uh, wait. I mean, assuming that we don't all uh, uh, like movies are a thing again, I can't wait to see uh, his new one. He's got a new one coming out, uh, Blonde, which is about Marilyn Monroe and stars Ana de Armas. Uh, which is going to be really interesting. So, yeah, yeah, I can't wait for that. that... <laughs> Hopefully, that one's in my wheelhouse. Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Well, what is your number three? My number three. Okay, so here's here's where we're going to get. Remember, I said there was one part I was thinking about switching, mm. and I didn't. This was where I was thinking about switching. <clears throat> my number three is Once, mm. and this is this is a film that. I adore and I loved it since the uh, first time I saw it. And yeah, you're right. It's all about the music and it's all about this relationship. And what I love about it is how devoted it is, not just to the songs, but to the concept of playing music together and to learning about each other through that music and where you're at in terms of songwriting and playing and play style and all of this stuff. And it's, it just, it just lives with these two characters, just making beautiful music together and figuring each other out through that process. And man, it's like cat dip for me <laughs> watching two really talented people actually like sit down and try to figure out stuff. Mm. The, the falling slowly sequence oh, yeah. is the moment I fell in love with this thing yeah. because it is, they are sitting in this in this music shop and they're just talking about chord progression mm. they're just they're just going through the song before they play it and i'm like you never see that in a movie you never people just like figure it out somebody will start playing a couple chords and it's like oh i know this and then hop right in even though they've never heard the song before but this one is it takes its time with it and you can see them you know just just falling in love over the course of this and it just 
oh god i just love it <laughs> i love it so much um and it brought back many many happy memories in this time one of them was the first when i first saw it i saw it um in a theater called the vickers in uh, three oaks michigan and that is a fantastic little movie house um and i'm hoping that it gets to reopen just mm. like every other theater in the country but man it it brought back some you know bittersweet nostalgia and the whole film is bittersweet and i saw the stage show too which i thought was great because the whole thing is just about you know a bunch of actors on stage playing music together um and you know it just yeah i, I just love this film so so much um i don't know i don't know what more to say about it it's it, but yeah it's it's fantastic music uh great performances and I know that you saw this for the first time, but you know, there's that dialogue scene where he's asking her, how do you say, do you love him in Czech? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And then she says something to him in Czech that has, that's just, you know, not prompted. It's just, she says something. Yeah. Did you look up what she said? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Oh, Oh, okay. I'm not going to say it. You know what? I I will say is I, I kind of wondered, I kind of wondered cause she changed a word and I was like, okay. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so anyway, here's my thing. If you've if you haven't seen once, watch once immediately. Mm-hmm. It is an amazing film, especially if you like music or if you like just watching people play great music. Watch this film. Don't look this up. Don't look up what she says until after you finish mm-hmm. the movie. Mm-hmm. And if you have seen the movie, watch the film up until that point and look up what she says and prepare to have your heart broken. Mm. That's all I'm gonna say. God, I love this yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and I should it's a one of a kind. And I should also say, I mean, you know, watching it for the first time this week, I wasn't prepared for how it all turned out. Like where the trajectory yeah. of this relationship, where that goes, I, I it didn't have it ru- ruined for me by anybody, which I'm thankful for. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was lovely. And yeah. and that moment that you're talking about, the the creation of the song "Falling Slowly," um, one of the scenes of that whole year. Uh, just yeah. i mean it's the creation it's the it's the literally like communal creation of art which is fascinating yeah. to watch and i love that and and it's lovely especially in the context of this relationship and i just yeah yeah it's it's beautiful and all those and all those little grace moments of people just like the music bringing them into it mm-hmm. and the you yes. know like like the bank the bank loan guy who's like, mm, they're like, yes. he listens to the tape. Like, Let me show you something. He whips out a guitar. They're <laughs> serenading them. Yep. It's like, yeah. Yeah. It's, oh. it's great. It's great. And that takes you by surprise because you're not expecting it from this guy with a suit. Oh no. And, and yeah, it's just, you think that he's like gonna, gonna scoff and be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay. <laughs> but really he has the secret passion. Yeah. It's just great, great stuff. Uh, well, my number three is not a movie we're going to argue about. It's not on your list, but I know that you're a big fan of this one. Uh, my number three is one of my favorite films from this director, uh, and that is Zodiac from director David Fincher. Um, yeah, this movie is about the extended investigation into the activities of somebody calling himself the Zodiac Killer. He operated over the course of many summers, and this movie recreates a lot of those and also recreates the points of the investigation as followed by uh, – a trio of people played by future MCU actors, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, and primarily Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, yeah, I, I love it. This this movie is uh, – there's somebody on Twitter, I think her name is Priscilla Page, who calls this film comfort a comfort food for her. 
<laughs> and I think I kind of get it. There's a weirdly calming aspect to watching this play out, even though it doesn't end well, um, because, of course, he's very elusive. There's It doesn't start well either. It doesn't, it doesn't start well. But if you can get past that and you can get into the rhythms of this extremely yeah. patient um, you know, investigation as uh, dramatized by Fincher, I mean, it's... It's fantastic, and it's uh, co-written by James Vanderbilt, who also wrote a movie that you talked about today. <laughs> uh, yeah, House, I did. White House Down. Yeah, it's so weird that he wrote both of these, but um, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, cinematography by the late great Harris Savides, who is just one of the best. Um, rest in peace. I, I just i I love this movie. I haven't watched it in a while. This is another one. You know, it's just long, and I was catching up with other things and. I couldn't couldn't make time for it. I would love to have done that, um, but it's yeah, it's a uh, it's great. Performances across the board are tremendous, and uh, yeah, great ensemble, um, great filmmaking, and uh, really puts you in the grip of this story, um, which is you know twisted and without a resolution. I'll just say that. I mean, it's not even a spoiler. Um, no. You know, people know that he was active for a long time after the period of time that this movie ends. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm a number three Zodiac. I know that this is, this is among your original um, honorable mentions. It would be, yeah. it would be like my number 11. Yeah. yeah easily. Yeah. Easily my number 11. It's yeah. yeah. It's so good. And it's, yeah. The, the whole thing about the relationship between the press and the mm-hmm. police. And, yeah. um, Absolutely. Oh, and those, a lot to those, say about that. Yeah, and those early murder scenes, that one by the lake is oh, just excruciating. Oh yeah. That is probably the probably the most tense I've felt in a film. It ranks up there with mm-hmm. the most tense I've felt watching a film. Nice. It's woo, yeah, yeah. It's um yeah, it's really it's really something. And I, I did watch it again not this time around, but I have watched it since it came out. I think when I picked up the Blu-ray with like the director's cut on it. Which isn't much. It's like you know, an added like audio audio montage in mm. the middle. Okay, um, but yeah, I haven't, it's, I haven't yeah, seen it's the still... director's cut. Yeah, so oh, okay, yeah, it's, you're not you're not missing anything except that it, the, that time lapse that happens. They mm. they make you feel that time a bit more. Okay, um, but yeah, it plays like gangbusters. It's so good. All right, well, we're back around to your number two. All right, my number two came up earlier and that's bridge to terabithia which yeah i mean i i i mean i don't know if this is really a forgotten film when nobody went to go see it and yeah, <laughs> right. part of that, yeah. And part of that is because it was not sold correctly it was sold as you know a fantasy film and you know people probably were a bit fed up with all that stuff around that point i mean they had they'd gone through lord of the rings and they had you know the start and stop of narnia i don't even remember where the narnia chronicles were at at that point but you know it's like I, I, there comes a point where people start to get tired of stuff except apparently superhero movies <laughs> that's gonna come <laughs> around eventually but um i don't know i don't know how they would have sold this thing though because it's 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 just mm. about a kid learning that you know he's he's got his own problems in life but that other people have problems in life and that this you know this friendship that seems to be able to transcend an entire lifetime like within a couple of weeks just comes into existence it's a lovely film and it's 
heartbreaking in ways that apparently everybody knew about because i guess this book is pretty popular right <laughs> but i had never read it oh um and <laughs> right. so yeah so when that part comes around i was not expecting that and uh yeah it was not not a pleasant experience on my eyeballs um and it's still <laughs> yeah. not when i rewatched it it is not it's rough because it comes out of nowhere mm-hmm. and you don't expect it and and yeah but it it does talk about a lot of things that i don't think kids really get to talk about which is you know like how you know you know the ways that bullies are and you know the role of religion in a life and um and just and friendship and just being able to be friends with somebody in such a deep and meaningful way that it seems so simple but is so profound and i don't i mean like i said how do you sell that film you can't sell it Mm. um and but i'm so glad that it was made because it's it's great and i i really do i I always struggle you know like like when when it comes to like family films because you know i have like i have like two goddaughters and they're they're young and I keep thinking like, this is a great film that at least the older one should see. And then I'm like, do I really want to, <laughs> I really want <laughs> to do that. I really yeah. want my little goddaughter to watch that. Oh my God. It's, it's so rough. I, that's what I'm saying. I don't know how you sell this film to people. This is you more, almost, this almost, is more of a, uh, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, like you, a kid's almost, movie made for adults. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, you almost have to dupe audiences. Uh, with with something like this yeah, you, you, you have to dupe him into watching it and then and then they'll just not come out the same at the end um and yeah, yeah i, I don't mean, know because of course it did have the fantasy element otherwise you're just mm-hmm. dealing with with i mean not to not to um like simplify the movie at all because i think that it's i think that it's better than this simplification but otherwise i mean if you try to just sell it as as something you're just, they're just going to be like, oh, well, I can just go watch my girl again. That's what kind of this reminds of. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I... and again, not to simplify, I, I like my girl a lot. I think that that's a really good movie, but this is very different. Um, it's, it's in terms of what, it, what else it's doing uh, other than that. And I, yeah. I think that that, because what's, you know, what's, what's fantastic about it is that it is, it is about, it's about a friendship. It's mm-hmm. not about like, right kid you know kitty romance or anything like that does right the the two characters are genuine friends nothing else right nothing more not gonna happen in the future at all for for reasons beyond what happens i'm just saying in general right right yeah they are just be lifelong friends they're never gonna they're never gonna get involved yeah whatever yeah it's yeah it's and that's important that's an important lesson too i Mm -hmm. think especially in terms of like the ways that you know movies like just boys can be friends with boys can be friends with girls without any other and girls can be better than boys in certain ways and still be cool and friends it's nice it's yeah it's it's a great film it's a great great film yeah and yeah it's a shame people didn't see it i assume it's on disney plus uh i I assume i think it is i'm gonna have to look again i didn't see it last time i i don't know yeah, I'm gonna have to look. Because um, I have a Blu-ray, so I just watched that. Right. So I, I know that it was on Netflix until recently, uh, but I don't know because that's how I last. Yeah, I don't know. Look, it'd uh, be a good, it'd be a good movie to watch, like before you watch it with your kids, so you're prepared yes. for all the stuff you're gonna have to talk about with them. But yeah, yeah, and I would know, say that probably watch it with your kids if they're around nine or ten, something like that, maybe. Um, yeah, that's probably a good age. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, um, and, and, and it's good to note that because PG tends to mean that, you know, they, they mean seven and up 
uh, which is yeah, gen- generally yeah. what PG means, but yeah, maybe a little older than seven. Uh, <laughs> that's, that might be a little young to, to process a lot of this, but, yeah. um, but yeah, my number two, uh, is the other one that we're going to disagree on. Uh, but, but just a little hint, we're going to agree on our number one. <laughs> so don't worry about that, but we are going to disagree on my number two, which is atonement from director Joe Wright. Uh, I adore this movie. I adore this movie. So I had a weird relationship with this. Uh, back when it came out, it did come out in Dallas, but it only came out at, so we have two art house theaters. They're both currently of course closed, but uh, with apparently no real threat to not reopen. Um, but anyway, they're called the Angelica film center. There's really only six or seven locations around the country. We happen to have two near us. And so it came to one of those and the one in downtown Dallas, but it never came to the one closer to us. So it was like a big thing. And I really wasn't up to going out to Dallas at that point in my life. So my parents and I all went out there and then there was some, and and we saw it or we tried to see it and there was some adult material in it, let's just say. And so we left and I wouldn't have done that if I was alone. But we left. And so then I watched it later on. And I think that just the memory of that, I think I might have watched it when we were in Indiana. And I think the memory of that, I was like, oh, well, then I just I don't know if I like it very much. And so I didn't respond to it. And I, I think I probably wasn't paying attention. So then a couple of years ago, I was I think I was trying to maybe try to um, catch up with a bunch of Best Picture nominees and I knew that that was one that I hadn't seen since my attempts before. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to give this another chance. It, I, you know, I remember it being this like this stuffy thing that I just, I didn't respond to, but man, I did a complete 180. And this is a really, really complex, strange movie, especially when it gets to the end. But the story basically follows across various um, generations uh, a young woman named Bryony, who is initially played by in uh, her it wasn't her debut performance, but it was a breakthrough performance by Saoirse Ronan, uh, who was nominated for an Oscar for this. That was her first of four nominations um, at the age of like 14 or something. And she plays Bryony, who is who sees something that she doesn't really understand. And just to tell people, this is sort of uh, a nonlinear experiment in perspective because we first see the things hap- these things happening from her perspective, I think might be switched. And then we see it from the perspective of the two people whose lives she kind of unintentionally ruins um, uh, this slightly older couple na- uh, played by James McAvoy and uh, Kira Knightley. Um, and then we are led on this long journey that follows these characters um, or mainly McAvoy's character through various timelines in history, including the Dunkirk evacuation um, in this really great long take um, sequence that is, that was kind of the the talk of the movie at the time. And then, and and we also catch up with Bryony who is then played by Ramallah Garai. I don't know what happened, what has happened to her since then, but she's in this, um, and then we get into this third act that completely redefines everything and for a lot of people undermined everything about it. Um, I don't even... <laughs> I'm raising my hand, yeah. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, for me, what happened here is a case of 
basically, I think that this is something that, that honestly, <laughs> I don't know if Mark is going to be like, oh, I'm leaving. Um, but I think that this is closer to Hitchcock than people realize. I think that, I think that he might have done something like this where he starts playing the audience some uh, Joe Wright, the director in this case, starts playing the audience like a piano in a certain way before basically dropping an axe on everything um, or an anvil, whatever you want to call it, because it ends up that without really spoiling anything, a lot of this movie is fiction within the context of a fictional uh, story. And for me, that just heightened everything about it. I loved everything that it redefines about the story in that regard. I totally, this is the one where I'm not going to fight Mark on this. I mean, I wouldn't fight Mark anyway, but I, I'm not going to fight Mark or anybody who, who didn't respond. Well, you didn't, can't right now. Right, I that's mean. true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would, I would say, Hey, I'm going to come up there, but, but I can't leave the state. Um, <laughs> we'll shadow box from six feet apart. There we go. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I wouldn't fight anybody. It, it, it you reached that ending for a lot of people. It was destructive of everything before the movie. Um, if you even liked what came before, and I know that there were some people who just found it stuffy before that. I found this to be so alive. Uh, Joe Wright is a really underrated director until recently. Uh, very very good. I really liked a lot of his movies up until Pan, whatever that was. Uh, Darkest Hour was kind of you know middling. Yeah. But I really liked, I mean, I love this. I really liked his Pride and Prejudice adaptation. Um, mm-hmm. I really liked Hannah. I really liked The Soloist. That's one that a lot of people forget about. But this is, uh, this is his best film that, I, that I've seen from him. Uh, I loved everything about it. But again, it, it, you know, Mark is, is one of those people who felt that, you know, just to, to talk for him uh is is you are one of those people who just felt like everything just kind of collapses and yeah uh, yeah which i again i I do not blame you it's too much the third act is too much right one one too many things that just like oh okay well all right yeah (laughs) what is what does any of this really mean then right and yeah but yeah and i just i just Um, felt like it was saying a lot about a specific character and for for a lot of other people, they felt it was at the expense of other characters. For me, yeah. Well, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I get it. It's, I know I understand it on a. I stand it. Right, I right, understand right. it yeah. on an intellectual level because it's. But the problem is, is that it's it's got that whole second act where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, well, that's kind of a big, you know, mm-hmm. big, big mountain in the middle of your character study that's you know vital to it, and I get the idea behind it, but yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it didn't work for me. Um, you know what? I have you seen his Anna Karenina? Oh, I forgot to mention that. Yes, I'm a big fan of that too. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was curious because you were listening <laughs> to all of them and you skipped that. I dug that one. Yes. I dug that because that's like fantastic. You know, yeah. like stage show brought to life, and just you see all the moving parts of the stage show as it's going on. I dug the hell out yeah. of that the way that that's done. Yeah, and yeah, Fred Rogers is fantastic. Um, and that's a, and Anna so. Karenina is another one that just like people didn't really didn't really respond to what i felt was underrated no, yeah they didn't yeah whereas yeah, pride, whereas I mean, pride and prejudice very very popular uh very popular movie yeah and, oh yeah uh, it's, it's widely really good at it yeah fantastic uh that's one of my favorite novels they did it justice so um yeah i need to i need to read this novel um yeah, this one is based on a I, novel as well 
I said that from the start. I said I need to read this book because I bet the book is mm, better. And right. I, I finally, I find I've been looking for that book like used mm. somewhere for like ever since it came out. I finally got it about a year ago. So maybe now that I'm on, you know, lockdown, <laughs> I'll actually pick it up and read it because I'm planning to, you know, when the weather gets warmer, I'm planning on, you know, staying outside, you know, on my lawn and just reading. Yeah. It. So I probably will grab that it's one. A good, it's a good plan. It's a good plan. So I'm glad you reminded yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get to our number one just to deflate a little bit of the suspense. We have the same number one. Um, yeah. Now, Mark, before – okay. In this order, I want you to tell people what current distinction this holds and then reveal the title, basically, like in terms of its placement for you among the, the centuries movies. <laughs> among the centuries movies, it is probably the best – film to come out this century so far um it's the only film that i saw by the time i reviewed it i felt comfortable calling it a masterpiece like flat out without any reservation um let me think is that about it yeah i guess so i keep thinking i keep you know i i don't believe there is such a thing as a perfect film but then i watch this and i think Maybe. <laughs> so he hates Maybe. so he hates this movie guys there we go no it's possible <laughs> but yeah it's no country for old men yeah yeah, yeah. oh man <laughs> i i can't tell you how many times i watched this thing after it came out um i saw it twice before i reviewed it because the first the first time i saw it i'm like i think this thing's just just a flat out all-out masterpiece and so i went to go see it a second time and as soon as that opening narration ended i'm like oh it is cool (laughs) 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 because you don't you know watching it you know the the big thing i guess we should start at the end (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a perfect place to start with this because everybody knows this film it's about a guy who finds two million dollars in the desert and is on the run from like this you know murderer with this weird but understandable set of rules about fate and the universe and his place in it and how no, nothing means anything. And it's just about the two of them, you know, trying to, you know, the one going after him and the guy trying to evade each other and they keep colliding. And then it ends with a long monologue about two dreams from Tommy Lee Jones as this world weary sheriff. <laughs> and I guess we should just start at the ending, which is just that, I mean, yeah, I didn't know if the ending really fit. And that's why the fact that, you know, Tommy Lee Jones's character starts off the film with this, this, you know, long, you know, narration about the state of the world and violence and how people just don't seem to understand anything. So that when that final scene comes along, if you're on that wavelength, you get it. It just clicks that it's just, it's just, it's just, it's what it is. To quote Joe Pesci and the Irishman, it, that's just the way of the world. It's the way of the world now. It's the way of the world back in the day. It's the way of the world it, when this film is set in, in 1980, which I think is very um, telling to the whole point of it, is that everybody, the, the, the Tommy Lee Jones character seems to be overwhelmed by the amount of violence in the world. And you think that at first you think like maybe this is a contemporary film and it's about how bad things have gotten. But no, it's a period piece set, you know, like, 27 years before the film started and you're like well if things were that bad for this guy then if only he were around now would he be thinking the same thing and is this seems really terrible and it, it 
you know, kind of, it doesn't seem, you know, quaint in the way that, you know, somebody would have been thinking about violence back in the old days. It's really, it's really complex <laughs> and layered in terms of its, its understanding of humanity and the nature of humanity and the nature of violence and the cyclical nature of violence. And then with all of that going on, it's also just a clockwork thriller. Mm. It just moves logically from one thing to the next, from one set piece to the next, from one detail to the next with all these characters just you know establishing themselves very quietly through action like the way that josh brolin's character just like picks up a, a shell after he shoots um an animal while he's hunting he picks it up and you just realize instantly like this is a guy who can you know clean up his mess and tidy up after himself and he knows what he's doing and the rest of the film is just following through on that the way that he's hiding this two million dollars in a little satchel and i love that detail that's, you know, $2 million isn't going to be in a big lumpy suitcase. It could fit inside a satchel that you can carry around mm-hmm. with you. Um, and so it, you just watch him try to hide this thing. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm just going to go into too many details about this thing. It's just, it's, it, it's just fantastic. It's, uh, yeah. And I, it's, it's fascinating. I actually grabbed the book when I was watching it this time because I just wanted to reconfirm. But basically, you know, the Coens are known like Tarantino or, you know, Mamet or somebody like that. They're known for mm-hmm. their dialogue. And what's fascinating here is that they basically just transcribe Cormac McCarthy's mm-hmm. novel. Yeah. And it, it, that, none, that dialogue isn't theirs. That is all McCarthy. But that that doesn't matter because it's the filmmaking on display. It's it's the way that the thing moves. It's the way that all of the pieces connect and um, go from one thing to the next and how meticulous they are in setting up these suspense scenes with silence and this very like this very slow rise of sound coming in. There's a couple of scenes in hotel rooms where you can just barely hear like a shotgun, a silent shotgun blast and a phone ringing and the beeping of this tracking device. And you just hear them and they get louder and louder and louder. And you realize that like death is right Mm. there. And it's, God, it's just, it's, it's as close to perfect. I think as a movie can get. (laughs) It is. It is. And, and, and it also, I mean, to go back to the ending, I think is one of the most perfect ending, like final scenes in the history of movies. I I, just, it's up there. Uh, That whole thing. I mean, it's just, I have to wonder how many people delivered that as a monologue in like acting classes, <laughs> because I mean, it's the perfect kind of thing. If you want to just say, that'd be, that'd be hilarious <laughs> to see a bunch of high school students. Try to, try to do crack. Try to be the guy. The like, uh, and by the way, I, 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 uh, I hinted at this before, um, you know, when talking about Daniel day Lewis in there will be blood. The fact that as great and towering as he is, he's not my best actor choice. Um, I would, I would say, I mean, not out of the nominees because Tommy Lee Jones was nominated for another movie, but if he had been nominated for this, uh, he's who I would have voted for because I think that his performance is, it's such a, it's such a different, it's weird. It's such a perfect Tommy Lee Jones performance. I mean, this is definitely, absolutely the guy from the Men in Black movies. uh, And you can recognize that in the world weariness and all of that. But it's also a twist on what he usually does, which is, and I'm not complaining about this, but he doesn't perform this as 
world-weary corn pone John Wayne. He does, and and, and mm-hmm. I think that yeah, I kind of made a comparison uh, of a few months ago. Um, Jeff Bridges in Hell or High Water is giving is doing a similar thing where he's twisting a previous role that he's had or a previous kind of role that he's had, and you can see like this guy Ed Pombell is his name is Jones's character's name, and you can tell that this is a guy with absolutely just very sharp detective work skills because you know there's mm-hmm. uh the villain here played by javier bardem we didn't even mention him yet um yeah, yeah I didn't even <laughs> he's, <mention>. he's terrifying <laughs> um yeah he carries around a a, a a cow gun or a stun gun i think it's called a cow gun though and it a bolt, gun. bolt yeah, gun yeah there we go bolt, bolt gun like that. that can like eject the locks of doors um and maybe some other things that are really disturbing uh, <laughs> throughout. But it can eject the locks of doors. And so he does that at one point, and the lock hits the wall. And you can tell later on, or just after this, when Ed Tom Bell and his, and his deputy, played by Garrett Dillahunt, uh, visit that. You know, he notices the lock. He goes in. He sees the impression on the wall. He deduces immediately that that impression was made by the lock, which was then ejected out of the thing. I mean, he's, he's right on this bad guy's tail, both in terms like physically, because they're, they're really close to him at some points. And also just in terms of, he's really putting together how this guy works without ever interacting with him. It's a perfect performance. And this also, I mean, I told you I was going to bring this up. Every time I watch this movie, I forget until I watch it, how funny it is. And, and I mean, yeah. it's not a comedy. I'm not going to say that, but I, but right. No, it's not. Uh, whereas you could maybe argue that with, with something like Fargo, um, this, this is definitely not, I think that this is closer to blood simple. If, if anything, um, they're working on similar wavelengths, but they are similar in that the Coens know exactly how to work in humor. I, I think about, um, there's, um, uh what is the sequence oh yeah it's it's actually it, it even incorporates the villain into in, into it sometimes so like there's the exchange that he has with the lady where um where uh Brolin's character works who is absolutely just a stone wall of i'm not telling you anything get out of the building and the look that he yeah. gives her when he's exiting is man i really wish that I could kill you right now, but I don't think that I, I don't think that I could, I don't think you'd let me. And it's just this incredibly like deadpan look. Um, mm-hmm. there's, uh, or when, or when he's yes. talking to the gas station clerk, <laughs> he, he kind of like chokes a little bit before he's you yes, married into yes, it. <laughs> exactly. And it's almost like he's this, he, it's almost like he's this robot in a certain way. Who's trying to emulate a human personality with humor. Like it, it's because it's maybe so unnatural to him because he's so otherwise completely heartless and psychopathic. I mean, we see the, um, you know, the scene where he's bringing out a couple of, I guess, advisors, I'm not sure, to the crime scene and then kills them. Um, you know, mm-hmm. at, you know, first, of course, he asks for the flashlight. Um, it just little details like that. And the, uh, the gag, and it's really kind of a gag, honestly. It's a distraction when he blows up a car outside of a pharmacy um, to just so that he can steal some stuff to get a bullet out of his leg. I mean, 
just the um, the almost deadpan look as he's walking away like no i i wasn't the person who did that uh <laughs> and uh he's always looking around and he's really not bending over to to look at his work he's very much extremely close to the car but he's super like you know looking around making sure that nobody's looking um ultimately probably doesn't care but you know it's just it just is a perfect performance from Bardem who really knows how to really knows how to play it but more importantly they know how to write that character um and it also honestly i mean with this ending which is true i mean the first time i saw it the entire ending not just the final scene but the entire third act where something unthinkable in a movie occurs and then the movie goes on for like 25 minutes. Yeah. I was, I was stuck to the screen, but I was also struck every time I watched it again by the fact that, yeah, this guy does have something of an extremely twisted, extremely sick moral compass. And we'll just say that it stops apparently at children. So, I mean, there are are teenagers. There is a strong, as far as we know, that's true. I mean, there's there's a strong suggestion that that it may very well be like at one point he's the one who killed a dog, for instance, could be. But yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, it's even beyond that. It's 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 as you say, it's a masterpiece, and this this thing is just perfectly perfectly put together. Um, and, and just getting to the aesthetics of it, Deacons in cinematography. Mm-hmm. Gore, gorgeous. I mean, there's a shot right at the beginning when Roland is hunting a um, uh, a deer. Um, when and, and it's captured in a long shot. And this is rural Texas for you. There's a single giant cloud coming in over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's all and it's all completely just like obscuring all of deer. Yeah. That that is rural Texas for you. There are stretches like that where you are in the midst of a really burning hot sun sunny day and then all of a sudden a giant cloud will come in and completely cover everything <laughs> and one specific patch and then it's really quick and then it and then it goes off I mean, just obviously that would have been by accident that they captured that but it's like a perfect accident and i i just i, love I wonder um, how many I wonder how many perfect accidents there are because there is that thing in like this, you know, like the storm coming in basically, right, just ready to come in. And then there's also that that when he's being chased by um by the drug cartel mm-hmm. and he's running through the desert in the middle of the night and there's a storm on the horizon and there's just a single flash of lightning in the distance, like yeah. perfectly timed, perfectly framed, and you're like, how how many how did of those, they do like, that? perfect accidents? <laughs> Like, was that CG or did they just run knowing there's a storm in the distance and just wait for that lightning bolt and just grab that part of the shot? Because, yeah, yeah there's just these little things. That it's just. Yeah. I mean, they could easily have just had the camera running for a while. And then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's found a it storm. Anything. Wait for the lightning bolt. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just we'll just, you know, and then it was literally the Coens who edited. So, so they're just like. Well, yeah. we'll just we'll just put it together. Um, yeah. yeah, and and I just yeah, I love it. I love it to pieces. I I um, I love every time I watch this thing. It is. Uh, it, it, so here's the thing. Like this is a little information about me, guys. If I've seen a movie before, I'm not gonna pretend that I'm gonna just watch the movie and glue myself to the screen. I'll probably do something else. Now, if it's the first time viewing, I won't do that. But if it's something that I've seen before, as, as great as it may be, I will probably do something else. I'll probably get on the computer and just have it and then watch it 
a lot of the time, but maybe I'm doing something else on the computer. This one that never works, that never works because no, no, because I mean, it really grabs you immediately. I mean, that opening monologue is fantastic. Shout out, by the way, within that monologue to the city that my dad works in, uh, (laughs) Plano. He is the, uh, the deputy (laughs) chief of police in Plano. So, um, yeah, it just, uh, it sucks you in. And I just, I just, I may have my computer out for a few minutes and then I'm just like, nope, I'm going to put my computer down <laughs> because I got to watch the movie. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's like, absolutely it's, like that. Yeah. For me, it's like something like this or 2001, a space odyssey or a <laughs> Godfather. So you like, you start it up and you're like, well, I guess I'm, there goes my afternoon. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, exactly. I guess. I'm not going to be doing anything else. Um, yeah, it's, it's that great. And, uh, yeah. So both of our number ones of 2007, uh, we want to do a quick recap. Uh, yeah, let's do that real quick. Uh, here we go. So my number 10 is black book. Number nine, Lars and the real girl. Number eight, Spider-Man three. Yes. Spider-Man three, seven, <laughs> sicko, six, lust caution, five, breach, four, Juno, three, once, Two, Bridge to Terabithia, and number one, with a bullet, No Country for Old Men. <laughs> with a literal bullet. Um, yeah. Or maybe with the, the little thing that comes out at the end of the, uh, the stun gun. Yeah, uh, the little bolt. <laughs> yeah, the bolt. There we go. With a bolt. Um, all right, and my list at number 10, yes, uh, Mark and I are united on this. Spider-Man 3, one of the best superhero movies ever. Number nine, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Uh, number eight, There Will Be Blood. Number seven, Juno. Number six, Once. Number five, Bridge to Terabithia. Number four, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Number three, Zodiac. Number two, Atonement. And yes, shared with Mark, number one, No Country for Old Men from the Coen Brothers. Um, yeah, that's a couple great lists. Um, yeah. And that does it, folks. That's our, that's our picks for, for 2007. Uh, I will be back next week with uh, my friend Callis Davis, who is going to join me for the best films of 2006. That's going to be a lot of fun. I've got a lot of uh, <laughs> unconventional picks on that list, really, truly. So, um, yeah, everybody have a safe week. Please stay inside. You know, as the uh, the saying goes right now, stay inside uh, could save a life or something along those lines because it could. Um and, uh, you know, just, uh, just be, just be, uh, vigilant out there, folks. Yep. Uh, be careful, Mar- be safe. Thank yes. you 10 million times over to all medical professionals. Yes, absolutely. Thank absolutely. You. Yeah. All essential, all essential workers, all essential workers who are, uh, who are, you know, braving the, the, um, the outside at this point is there. You're all amazing. And, uh, yeah. All right. Well, Mark, thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you yeah this was this was fantastic we're hoping to have mark on for one more of these uh and i'll keep you updated on that but yeah until then um or until next week for for me uh yeah it's been it's been fantastic so mark where can people find you online uh markreviewsmovies.com is my website uh, which is still going like i said still got digital and vod movies coming out so i'm covering those um Twitter at Mark Reviews. I just started an Instagram account this week, which isn't that's gonna be a fun little thing. Um, that is just <laughs> my name, Mark Dusik, D-U-J-S-I-K. Should be able to find it that way. I'm on Letterboxd, same deal, Mark 
D-U-J-S-I-K. And yeah. All right. (laughs) Well, uh, my website is not really functional right now, but if you want to read some old reviews, it's joelonfilm.com. I will be bringing it back maybe within the next couple months. It depends on how things clear up, but uh, uh, otherwise you can, you can follow my, you know, my, uh, my senseless ramblings on Twitter at real Joel Copeling. That's R E E L J O E L C O P L I N G. And um, search my name on Letterboxd so we can find me uh, there for my daily progress. I still kind of update update that. I need to start reconfiguring that a little bit. Um, and let me think. Oh, and of course, some of my writing at SpectrumCulture.com. Uh, great little outlet there. They're doing a really neat thing called the Spectrum. The Spectrum. I think it's called the Spectrum Culture Guide to Isolation, um, which is just a running like blog about what the contributing writers are watching during this time and where you can see it and all that. Um, and then, uh, you know, just review like, like Mark reviewing some of those VOD titles that, that pop up and, um, yeah, it's fantastic. So, um, yeah, that's it. And if you want to follow this podcast, you know, you know what to do, like subscribe, we're on Spreaker, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, a bunch of other places that I forgot, uh, but we're on a lot of platforms, and um, you can listen to us anywhere. And Anchor, of course. Anchor's great. It's been a great outlet. So, folks, have a good one out there, and I will, I will, you'll hear from me next week.